You're listening to Learning Now Radio, bringing you the best news, views, and interviews from the team that brings you Learning Now TV. This is Learning Now Radio. Hello, I'm Colin Steed, and I'm delighted to welcome you to Learning Now Radio. Learning Now Radio is Learning Now TV's bi-monthly podcast for all learning and performance professionals. This is Learning Now Radio with Colin Steed and Lisa Minogue-White. In this week's episode, we're looking at the application of neuroscience and the organisation. How are organisations using brain science to help their high-performing teams? Are they concerned with well-being? Do they use rewards? Are they employing gamification? In today's episode, Lisa and Amy Brown are talking about these vitally important issues and the important steps that organisations can take to create a better performance culture. So in this episode of Learning Now Radio, I am delighted, frankly, because I'm a bit of a fan and I know I've already embarrassed her by telling this before we started recording. I'm a bit of a fan of Amy Brand's work. She leads Synaptic Potential and she's author of three books on the application of neuroscience in organisations. And her latest book, Engaged, was the one that really sparked my interest and made me go through your back catalogue, Amy. And I'm really keen to talk to you today and to be able to share your insights with the rest of learning and development, because I think you've got some important things to say about us achieving our potential, both as a learning profession and organisations generally. So, Amy, welcome to Learning Now Radio. Oh, thank you, Lisa. I'm really excited to be speaking with you. Excellent. Well, I know that very recently our eagle-eyed viewers of Learning Now TV will have seen you on Learning Now TV. And what I wanted to do really with this interview is be able to dive a little bit deeper into some of the themes that you were talking about there. And the first one that I want to discuss with you, because it's something that's really close to my heart, is this idea of creating a performance culture because of course that's not just one input there are many factors that contribute to performance in an organization and I thought I'd start with what are some of the common mistakes that you're seeing in organizations at the moment where they are stifling or preventing organizations achieve their true potential well if I take a zoomed out look at this because I could I could scurry into all the science but if I take a zoomed out look then from what we know about how the brain works we know that when you neurally reward so not necessarily an external reward that we would classically think of like paying someone more money or praising someone in public although those things are fantastic anything that triggers a neural reward within the brain floods the body with these positive chemicals tells the brain to do that again. So it's like a big a big flag waving up in the air saying, yes, that was a good thing to do. Make sure we do that again, brain. Come on, team, we can do this. And then the next time an opportunity, a similar opportunity comes up, a scenario, then, then we naturally find ourselves drawn to doing that again. So we're really conditioning behavior every single day. And I think one of the largest mistakes that I see in organizations, and this is experiential, just me seeing in lots of organizations and them self-reporting, is when I go through what would make a, a neuro-friendly culture. You know, what, what do we know about the brain that would enable you to shape a culture that would give the organization the best chance of achieving its potential and, and facilitating great performance? What the key thing that everyone's saying is we don't celebrate enough. 
And it's kind of heartbreaking. Some organizations obviously have got it down pat, but many organizations say, oh, well, we do the big things. Like we have that that big celebration annually or we have that award ceremony, but we don't actually recognize on a daily or weekly basis the great effort that's being put in by people. And I don't know whether that's an overhang from days when managers and leaders used to think, well, you know, they're paid to do this job. Why would we need to thank them as well? Um, I don't know what it is. Do you have any ideas, Lisa? Well, I think that's a good point. And, you know, I think one of the things is understanding what reward looks like. And we used to use, um, I used to run uh, community facilitation workshops. And you talk about how you foster communities, because actually often that's a vehicle that people think to use. Well, actually, if people want to make that contribution and they want to be recognised and they want to have that recognition in the organisation for what they know and what they could contribute, a community is actually a really good place to do it. But a community isn't just a community. It's got to be contextual. So we used to use a really very simple two-axis diagram. On the bottom right-hand side were research scientists and the top left were city analysts. And you talk about, so what would reward, what, what does reward look like to each of those two audiences? Now, I'm afraid you're making some huge assumptions here, which is you know very <laughs> naughty, but you're essentially saying, look, you know, that reward doesn't look the same depending on what is important to you, what your values are, what motivates you. And it means that you have to show some discretion and insight and context into rewarding what's important, both to the organisation and I think what drives the individual. And sometimes it's difficult to know where to start with that, I think. I agree. And I think something that's just sparked in my head from what you've just said, which is another thing that is a common mistake and another thing that's perhaps not easy to change, but I think is absolutely vital that we do, is that people are overworked um, and our brains don't function well when we're completely overloaded. We barely have time to process information given to us, let alone think or be creative or any of these other things that a high performing culture typically requests of its people. Linked to this is this, this idea of creating a trustworthy environment. And many organizations say that they value this or they offer a work-life balance, but then expect people to work crazy hours. And this classic way of doing things where we're just ringing people out, getting every last drop from them, means that then what you're left with is a pretty tatty old dishcloth that's got bits falling off it that's just not going to be fit for purpose. And so that would be another big mistake that we're seeing across many organisations. It's interesting, isn't it? If you think about the media at the moment, actually, Amy, the kind of reaction to that. I remember many, many years ago as an undergraduate looking at human factors because at Bristol University, where I studied, we have um, Airbus and British Aerospace and obviously a lot of aircraft manufacturers here. So human factors is a big part of the study there and understanding what performance looks like and how it drops off, you know, true attention, fatigue, all those sorts of things. And of course, at the moment, we've had the conversation around junior doctors and yes. hours and expecting incredible levels of performance, of diligence, of attention, you know, re knowledge retrieval and adaption and uh, from fast reaction through to full sort of diagnosis. The the processes that we're asking individuals like that to perform when they're tired, it does seem utterly insane. <laughs> It does, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, we, it, if you were asked to design something, you would not say, let's have our people that are going to be helping us either live or 
the absence of their help resulting in our death or you know everything in between let's have them be really exhausted so that we know that their cognitive processes are going to be impaired we know they're not going to be able to think laterally the way that they should we know that those insight questions are much less likely to come to them and we know that they'll be far less able to, uh, to trust their judgment and their their own intuition and gut instinct which we know is really important in diagnostics we know all of these things so so why on earth are we creating a scenario like that but it happens in in non-life or death organizations as well and it sort of antidotally what we see is then people get to the point where they've exhausted the goodwill of their friends exhausted the goodwill of their family that are now saying enough is enough you know we can't keep going living with with you in this state because obviously that person isn't just that person at work they then go home to their friends and their family and they're still that exhausted individual that perhaps isn't in the best state to then then be the 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 mother the father the husband the wife the partner at home well and interestingly if we talk about motivation and we can bring this back around to learning in a moment actually because even in those circumstances Money is simply not the answer. So if we take reward in a very binary measure of, okay, well, we will economically reward you for the effort that you put in. That's not the point because you've just alluded to all those other factors that make for general well-being. And obviously, there are experiments over in Sweden at the moment looking at reducing working hours and looking at yes. the impact there and obviously their their um, policy on paternity leave or um, a, a paternal leave I should say all those sorts of things are recognizing that reward is simply not a not a binary measure so we know those things but if we bring it round, back around to learning of course one way that this is then played out is if we understand that there is a chemical reaction to good things happening so, you know, achieving something, giving us that sense of achievement. And of course, that then releases chemicals that, that we want. We then want more. Can I touch on gamification for you for a minute? Because I think this is a very interesting area here, because one of the reactions I think has been in learning design is, OK, well, if we use game based dynamics here, which um, work on that reward mechanism, that that may motivate people to then contribute to and take part in learning if we gamify it. Now, I have a particular view, so I'm going to shut up now and I'm going to oh. ask you, Amy, what you think, and then I'll come back in. <laughs> oh, good. OK, I'm, I'm itching to hear what you think. So um, from a neural perspective, I think gamification can engage people, can start that cascade of addictive behavior based on the dopamine flooding our system and make us want to do more of what we're doing. I don't think it's the only piece of the puzzle. And I think if it were relied upon solely, you would get into trouble. So I think there are there are certainly other ways of releasing dopamine and serotonin and these other chemicals into our system and, make, and uh, helping us engage with learning and Things like the, the context and the contribution that we're able to make and being connected to those. If I had the choice between either really focusing people on the contribution that they were making and what, uh, why they then needed certain learning interventions or whatever we call them to enable them, to equip them to contribute more fully, be more of who they're meant to be at work and do more of what they're wanting to do there over utilizing a gamified learning intervention if i could only choose one of the two then i'd go for the contribution one now now i'm sitting on tender hooks what are your thoughts amy 
If you could have heard, and Colin would never forgive me because uh, there would have been a huge sigh of relief, which would have been terrible for our audio levels. If you could have heard me exhale there, my view is very passionately exactly what you just said. And I talk about um, when talk about this sort of subject and, and on occasion that I write about it, talking about professional gamification. For me, it is about, because I think also it then encourages the organisation to invest in these activities. It's about making a contribution that you know matters. So game-based dynamics, if you are solely relying on people coming to whatever you are providing as a way for them to learn and perform in the organisation, and you have to gamify on those on a games engine, for me, it, it feels like you're, you're kind of missing the point because it isn't about just coming to the content and getting through it. It is about being rewarded in the way in which exactly as you said, I'm achieving my potential. I'm being heard. I understand that I am making both a contribution and that in that sense, I'm also progressing so that the effect that has has is longer lasting rather than just as you've described that kind of addictive behavior, that quick dopamine fix. And right now I need the next one. Now I need the next one. Because if you chase that purely from a content perspective, you're going to be chasing your tail. You're constantly having to come up with new ways to trigger that reaction. Whereas if it, if it's something deeper, that's longer lasting. Yes, completely, Lisa. And um, I know you've got a daughter as well. I um, my daughter's three, and I often, when I speak, I often parallel learning for adults with learning for children because, from what I can see, the mechanisms are very similar. And I think some of the things that we have learned from education in children seem to be forgotten when we get to adults, and there's there's no reason why a lot of these things should be forgotten. And so, just the we're often given choices, I think, as as parents to use reward sticker based systems and and all sorts of um, tick boxes and things. And I'm very tempted at times to jump to the immediate gratification way of encouraging my daughter to learn something. So maybe if we're if we're looking at some phonics, then yeah, phonics cards are not her favorite thing. And they're not really mine either. I find the whole area a bit bit strange. But um, if if I were to fall into the well, come on, let's just do let's just do five look at five different phonics, and then you'll get a sticker then she'll be doing it for the sticker and next time I want her to do it it will what will it be a sticker again or will it be two stickers but what I actually want is for her to have a passion for learning and she loves reading books so I've got to connect this breaking the words down to actually well then you know this book that you love well then you're going to be able to read more of it yourself and you'll be able to read it to your babies which she loves doing at the moment that's important to her so I think this parallel that we can see with how we would put in more effort at times with children is exactly what we need to be doing in organizations it's not the easiest route and exactly you've given it importance you've you've given it context she knows that if she can get better at this she can engage in something else that she really enjoys and it's about making it was you know this much better than i do amy it's about making as many of those connections as you possibly can if it's just a one-way neural street that's not going to be as long lasting as making all these deep connections um to you know lots of different uh contexts so i'm really glad that we touched on that because i think that's one of the things that learning and development are uh, a look at and lots of conversation around how we make meaning out of work and the role that learning and performance can play in helping people make deep meaning. So from that perspective and from the work that you've recently been doing, Amy, what do you think are some of the most important steps organisations can take to create a better performance culture? I I don't think there's just one route to to getting here, as you um, no doubt would expect. But our normal approach is to recommend clarity. And so one of the 
we use the beautifully simple model that gets results. So this is really, really simple. If you imagine just a triangle, at the top of the triangle, you've got results on, say, the bottom right-hand side, you've got behavior, bottom left-hand side, you've got environment. And there's this relationship between your results, your behavior, your environment. It's really dead, dead simple. What most organizations that we see fail to do is, while many may be clear on the results they're looking to get, fewer few, I'd say, have got clear on the behaviors that are required for their organization to get their results. And almost none are clear on the internal environment. So the brains, the the strengths, the structures, the dates that you want your employees' brains to be in their internal environments and the external environment, the space that they're in day to day that would make it most easy for them to do those behaviors to get those results. So I think the most important step, any L&D team with the organization as a whole, so this um, collaborative approach would be to get clear on those components because once they're clear on that, then they can start clarifying, designing and shaping the results, the environments and, uh, and getting those results. So applying that, one of the other questions I had for you actually was what one of your what was one of your favourite pieces of research? But let's draw on what you just were describing there using, like you said, that very, very simple, but, you know, simple is good and simple (laughs) sticks. What has been your most encouraging and rewarding application of that in an organisation where you can see those changes happening? What's that look like for you? So different, different things in different ways. I Last year, we were working with an organization in their with their L&D team, and their intention was to bring to life this 80-20-10 principle. And it's not 80, is it? It's 70. That's, <laughs> but Amy, I already revealed to you that I got 40% of my statistics exam. You must not let me down with your maths here, Amy. <laughs> I have that crown. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, it just wasn't sounding quite right. Um, so they wanted to bring this principle to life within the organisation because they know that it, it's um, it's sort of said a lot, but they didn't feel that they were living it as such. And so by getting clear on almost that being the result and what that would look like, then we were looking at well, what behaviours would we actually be seeing? And it was a very collaborative approach between the L&D team and the comms team and the other teams that needed to be on board with this. And so the, the way that they worked was already very strong to bring people in. But we then covered from an environmental perspective, one of our L&D models, uh, which is called the Cranes model, which looks at how to devise any learning initiatives so that they're going to hit on the things that are really important from the brain's perspective, like networking that you were talking about earlier, when you've really linked up as many of the neural pathways as possible, so that they're all supporting whatever action it is that you're looking to achieve. So then we were looking at the environment and what we could use to trigger these kind of behaviors that actually got people to say, what have I learned today? Not what training course do I need to go on or you know, who's going to feed me what information, but actually what have I learned today and all the different ways that are open to me of learning on an everyday basis and actually to weave that in to their thought processes every single day. So a real culture shift, but one that everyone was very committed to and there was a, a good launch for 
fantastic videos, lots of lots of environmental nudges to help people start thinking and behaving in a different way because they're an organization that know that they need to evolve quickly for a you know changing industry and be fit for the you know next two years as well as the next 20 years. So uh, seeing that really taken to heart and then worked through in a systematic way and almost using some of the materials we supply as a checklist to say, yes, we are, we're building things around networking. We're building things around enabling people to sleep between information so that things are um, settling into the brain more effectively. So yeah, I thought I found that very inspiring to see it actually played out in action. And I'm sure that there'll be lots of people working in the learning departments of organisations listening to this, thinking that this whole subject is really inspiring. It feels that it has the credibility and the backing and obviously in the research basis that it is something they could work with with the organization they can talk to the board about you know we have a lot of this dialogue at the moment as well about you know how do you get the attention of the board how do you build your credibility in the organization so having something that has this grounding in science i think is very appealing but it can be a little bit intimidating and quite challenging because then you you don't want to leave yourself open to mistakes you want to make sure you're going to get this right and your organization is going to want to see the impact of this and the impact on their results of undertaking things and looking at things from this perspective. Is there anything that organisations you think need to learn or ways in which they need to change to be able to develop more of that kind of robust research grounding, something that we talked about before we started recording, Amy, was the fact that I'm really keen to think about learning and development teams taking more of a hypothesis testing approach and applying good research methods. But where do you start with that? I think it's an awful lot for people with full-time jobs that are, in most instances, you know, overstretched to take on. If I were in that situation, I would be getting a team in to advise because it's creating good experiments, um, good studies. When we were doing a lot of work with Bangor University, every study is different. Every, there's a lot of research up front to identify what the best direction would be to go in in order to get the results. So even that's not uh, straightforward. But then, I mean, the reason that I'm saying this, which is, is not a favorable answer, I recognize, but is when I see a team of experts, so, you know, we have psychologists, neuroscientists, behavioral experts all sat around a table, all discussing a particular organizational challenge, then there's an awful lot of expertise that's thrown onto the table before we get to a point where we're then thinking, okay, this is this is the way that we're going to move forward with this. This is how we're going to measure it. This is, this is the in- intervention that we're going to try. And this is how we'll know that it's been, we've achieved the result. And there's, there's an awful lot of different ways that you could go about any of those i don't know of one easy place that people could go where they could quickly brush up on research techniques and be equipped to implement them with a good level of confidence the only thing that i could come back to would be this beautifully simple model that gets results where you're very clear on the results you're looking for very clear on the behaviors that would generate those results because this would be a similar approach that we'd take in the team and then looking at the environment but then to to effectively get that environment piece you'd need to dive into a lot of the research around it because obviously there's conflicting research sometimes you think oh okay this will be the way to go but when experimenters who spend all their time doing this think that one approach might be the way forward 
I think the, this happened with the language for the driving licenses when they were experimenting to try and get more people to sign up onto the donor register. The, the researchers thought one set of phrases would be more effective, but actually it was another set. So I think a key sometimes is to step back from what your hypothesis is and uh, look at what the actual results show, which is why it's just so critical that L&D moves from just doing something to actually measuring everything from a uh, stepped back perspective to actually check whether what they were thinking would happen is actually what happened or whether it had any negative consequences. Well, and I'm a big fan, Amy, here, because for some organisations, this may feel like a very big undertaking. Like, How on earth would I be able to make the case or get the investment to do this? For some organisations, that will absolutely be possible. For others, they may feel that they're under pressure that they can't. But just as you've described, actually, some small steps with projects that you are able to test the very simple model with, that you're able to demonstrate results, that kind of viral adoption of showing that there is potential here, that there is serious potential in, in taking this approach, I think is a really pragmatic place to start. Because often with any subjects like this, it can feel a little bit overwhelming. Like, my goodness, you know, we, 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 we could be going from zero to 100. How do we do this? But just as you've described, if you look at some specific situations where you know that there's a point of pain in the organisation, where there's a real challenge there, and you can test out the model, see how it supports and, and helps you get results better, you're then better able to start to make the case and going right back to our, st- our starting point of the conversation it motivates people because they see the results absolutely and it's that that enables you to have those more credible conversations with any board and which should then lead to a much closer working relationship i've been amazed sometimes when i've been to conferences and heard people talk about this close relationship between the the, the board and, and the objectives that are being set and then L&D following those objectives and that being revolutionary. To, to an outside person, it would be crazy for it to be anything but that because for what purpose does the L&D function, as it were, exist apart from to, to serve the people and the business? It just, it, it's illogical to me, but maybe I'm missing something. I think... Um, it's a historic issue and it's something that we've I've spoken about with lots of people we've been talking to for Learning Now Radio is that it is a perception of what learning do that they're keepers of the catalogue and that must change and you're absolutely right that lots of people I think that for example you know Cami Bean over in the US wrote her book The Accidental Instructional Designer there's a lot of people working in instructional design and learning roles today that haven't come from a learning development background and I'm one of those we've come from um, operational roles or other related roles like knowledge management for example so you're absolutely right it would it would seem crazy for it to be any other way however i think learning teams have unfortunately been sort of cast in a certain role but I do believe that's changing. And I think with models like this, and I've just interviewed Aaron Silvers, who is um, work, part of the working committee defining the XAPI standards. So looking at data and how you can be more intelligent with your data and actually test some of these hypotheses. This is where it's going. So there's a big change happening. But I think it to go back to our reward uh, conversation, Amy, it's a much more rewarding place to be. 
Absolutely. To know what you're achieving and to know that what you're doing is working and to be able to tweak things to to work better, to have that mindset that you know, it, it's OK for things not to work perfectly the first time, but we can adapt and, and polish. And that's good science. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, on that note, let's end on some good science, Amy. I really would encourage people listening today to check out Amy's book, Engaged. I thoroughly enjoyed it and it's incredibly accessible. There are some very practical tools and techniques that you can take from it, as well as giving you an insight into the research that goes into this work. So please go and check that out. And Amy, thank you so much for joining us today on Learning Now Radio. It's a real pleasure, Lisa. Thank you so much. Thank you. Learning Now Radio. All the best news, reviews and interviews. Well, that's all we have for this episode. I hope you found some useful takeaways to jot down and use back at work. And please remember to share Learning Now Radio with your work colleagues, your Twitter followers, and of course your Facebook friends. So once again, thank you so much for listening to Learning Now Radio. Please help us to spread the word by subscribing and rating us on iTunes. And Lisa and I look forward to you joining us in two weeks' time. 